the thing that's lost on people right now in this age of Trump, where so many people are could, or have expressed concern about things going on, is ways they can get engaged. I will tell you the following. One is you can get engaged by starting your own engagement institution or organization. You can say, I have 10 people that uh, that are looking for something to do. We care about this issue and we're gonna get more involved. We're gonna go talk to our Congress member, our council member, our state representative, and talk to them about gun control or talk to them about marriage equality or immigration. It's, it can start, if you are a constituent, your voice will get heard, and but you have to go and create the processes by which it gets heard. Welcome to FUSAPOD, a conversation about creativity, community, and the things that matter. I'm David Colby-Reed. In this episode, I sat down with New York City Council member Keith Powers to talk about criminal justice reform, housing, technology, and civic engagement from the perspective of someone who's just been elected to the New York City Council and has had three months in office. I'm excited to be alive after three months. <laughs> uh, I'm excited on the Rikers Island um, stuff to be part of what I think is a transformative effort that is not just about Rikers Island, but about reforming the criminal justice system, period. I still get pretty excited to be able to help people fix their everyday problems in Stuyvesant Town, in our neighborhood, or somewhere else uh, to make sure that people's basic quality of life needs are being met. And when you actually can do that, that's that's interesting and exciting. And I do really get interested in sort of like the legislative process and finding issues to work on and learning about new issues. So every time I want to know more about this issue, there's a, an abundance of ways to find out more information about it. And then on certain days, I'm, I'm just excited to sleep when I finally <laughs> have the time to. But uh, I think you learn more in this job than you can ever imagine, both attended and unintended. And it's it's exciting to be able to find issues that you and, and, and basically for me to chair a committee in criminal justice that I didn't I didn't that I I wanted to be the chair of. But there's a lot of new places for me to learn about ways mm-hmm. we can improve the system and be in a moment where that is I think at a high level of attention in our city and our country and to be spearheading that effort. I'm Keith Powers. I'm a city council member representing the 4th Council District in New York City, which encompasses a large portion of the east side of Manhattan, as well as the west side in Midtown. For those who are living in New York or are living outside of New York, would be most familiar by the landmarks that are in the district, which would be United Nations, Metropolitan Museum of Art, Carnegie Hall, Empire State Building, Times Square, uh, the Chrysler Building, Bryant Park, and then it kind of comes close to and around Central Park. And then down in the neighborhood where I live in, Stuyvesant Town, Peter Cooper, which is a large residential neighborhood that has been a, I would say, a landmark in terms of the fight around affordable housing and rent stabilization in New York City. So I can define it by the by the cultural and, and landmark institutions and neighborhoods of the district. And then, of course, the Upper East Side, Manhattan, at the, at the top of it, which is... Um, familiar to I think most people both in New York City and then outside of the city is a great neighborhood and a, um, a neighborhood that is home to many people that uh, help make this world work in its own way and it's a fact as you can tell it's a fantastic neighborhood I'm very happy to to represent it I'm also the chair of the criminal justice committee in the city council and you grew up like I'm trying to remember yeah third generation Stuytown, is that right? Or I am third generation in Peter Cooper and Stuyvesant okay. town. It was my family moved there as it was being built. It was a middle class neighborhood built for returning veterans after World War II. And 
resembled both the need to build housing, but also to try to build a type of housing that people could move into long term, uh, the veterans and their families raise a family in. So it's private, it's private, privately owned, but represents a sort of type of investment I don't think we make as much anymore in terms of middle class housing uh, in New York City, at least. And so my grandfather lived there, my Parents still live there. I live there. My 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 nephew was born there. It was number four. Unfortunately, they moved. But it's a I'm one of probably the few three third or fourth generation families that continue to reside in the neighborhood. The the early part of the history has a lot to want to take back in terms of who we didn't allow in and and how we admitted people and also just a a massive. I mean, you you even talk about the 30 or 40 year waiting list to get into it demonstrated the need for even more big types of projects like Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village. But certainly those parts, I think many of us are, are certainly ashamed of and uh, we're not, not present there, certainly are aware of. But uh, but there's other, there's a number of places throughout the city that resemble, very physically resemble Stuyvesant Town and, and others that resemble sort of the spirit of it in terms of making real investments in large scale housing developments. And how do you think about like, what do real investments in a 21st century sense look like yeah. in middle class housing or development? Well, I make, I have this comment that I, I've made a few times, which is we really invest now in buildings more than sort of large scale projects and meaning that we do a lot of our affordable housing through a building gets built over here or a building gets built over there and we put some requirement in rather than either the city or a private developer finding a you know, larger available places to build housing. Part of that's just a, I think it's Tony Soprano's quote of, uh, they ain't making land anymore, but it's not, they don't, you know, it's hard to find these big plots of land. But I think that a an investment now obviously addresses both the middle and the working class families. I mean, I, I think we scale, in scales, even apartment sizes, I think, don't actually address the need for 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 ha- housing for families in the way that we did in the past, where we I think we, we skew more towards smaller size apartments now for the transient population rather than looking at how do people make investments in it. Obviously, affordability is a big part of it. Uh, available amenities uh, uh, immediately nearby, schools, it's all those types of things and how we connect them. I think it's harder now because of the real the market that we live in. But I think when we have available places to build, not only should we be incentivizing private developers doing it, but perhaps the city should be more directly involved in creating both the funding streams and the actual projects that we can uh, incentivize, you know, actually doing real investments in, in middle class types of housing. So what what would like a city funding stream look like? And, well, I, w- I also would know just one other thing and then I'll answer the question, which is that the other thing we've gotten, we started to do poorly, was to take, to look at the available housing stock that we have. And Stuyvesant mm-hmm. Deputy Cooper is a perfect example of it, which is housing policies at the city and the state level that allow people to remove units and, and buildings at, t- at a time from the affordable housing programs that we created a long time ago. So in Albany, for instance, there's a whole group of lead pieces of legislation that are aimed at ensuring that we don't rapidly deregulate. Um, so I think that's actually that actually is probably priority number one is ensuring that our laws meet their purpose that our that the laws still meet their purpose. On the on the city side, I I talk about the Mitchell Lama program a lot, which is what I'm fond of, where 
the city helped worked with private developers to create both ownership models and rental models that I think predominantly served middle and working class families. And if you go right outside of Peter Grimm's Dives in town, Waterside Plaza, uh, East Midtown Plaza, uh, some on the Upper East Side as well, those were those were good neighborhoods that were built under this Mitchell-Lama model, and notably the two different types, one's ownership, one's rental. They had some flaws, They had, some of them expired from the program, but I think if you could go back to the model where the city invested in larger, and took their property they own, invested in larger scale housing with private developers to run it long term, create the incentive structure. It's, the trick here is it's expensive. That's why people tend not to do it. But I think the model by which we live in right now is there's different models, but one of them is to give a tax credit to private developers, let them create a small piece of housing and then affordable housing and then do all market rate. By the, by the math of it, we're creating more market rate housing than affordable housing, and we're spending a lot of money to do it. So I think that's a strategy we need to revisit. Just for background sake, can yeah. you explain like the Mitchell Lama program? And, you know, yeah, it, it essentially was just a program where the city would provide incentives to a, and usually they came in forms of like tax incentives or, or tax breaks over a, a sort of a period of time to a private developer to build a uh, either rental or an ownership model housing in the and that would allow and then there would be rents in there that were affordable to most of the people that wanted the apartments and very long waiting lists to get into them as those programs got more popular the models for instance in waterside plaza nearby was that after 30 years the developer could come out of the program so basically really really received a 30 year tax break to keep the program as affordable and then was able to come out of the program. And that stresses the people that live there throughout that time because many got to the end of the 30 year period and had to be had concerns about what what their future would be. And so we had to kind of create alternative programs to keep them in the housing. Other models are home ownership, they're co-op type of models. I like having more programs where we encourage home ownership. Even if it's limited, they're basically limited profit. But if you can create structures that people own, I think that's actually a desperately missing thing in New York City right now is programs also geared towards letting people get on the path of home ownership, which is, as we know, a path to intergenerational increases in, in wealth and um, ways to move people from, from one income bracket to another is to actually have real investments in home ownership. And I think at the city, especially Manhattan, we don't do a lot around um, uh, moving people towards home ownership. Go back to something you mentioned a moment ago about like different tax incentives mm. for development, and you know we read about like oh buildings that have an affordable housing or mandatory inclusion yeah, yeah. zoning stuff, or like you know the poor door business mm-hmm. and, and all the rest. But I, I think all these are instances of this idea that like oh well, let's just put incentives in the tax code and then allow developers or private actors more generally to go act. I, I'm blanking on her name right now, but there's a there's a scholar who's published this book called The Submerged State. Hi, this is Leeshawn here, jumping in for a quick note. The author that David is referring to is Suzanne Mettler, and her book, The Submerged State, How Invisible Government Policies Undermine American Democracy. 
We'll post it in the show notes. But the argument there is that, you know, like so much of what the state does is invisible, you know, yeah. and primarily through programs in the tax code. So when you ask people like, oh, where do we spend most of our housing dollars, you know, as a country, mm -hmm. you know, they'll say, oh, it's public housing, it's Section 8 and so on. But actually the mortgage interest deduction yeah. is the biggest housing yeah. expenditure. But yeah. it's invisible in that sense because it's through the tax code. Is that something you think about? I mean, like, I, I realize this is a big policy kind of question mm -hmm. in, in a different context and, and scale here, but like, how do you think about like the visibility of government programs more generally? It's you know? a great, great question. And on housing, it's correct that in New York State, for instance, we have programs where we where we, they were originally meant to incentivize people to build at a time where it was, people were not looking to build in New York City, Manhattan. Then they sort of became programs that included affordable housing because we said, for giving you the dollars, we want the housing. And now it's some weird hybrid and it's super complicated. This is, this is um, one particular program, 421A I'm talking about, but it's a hybrid that's so complicated it begs the question whether it's what purpose it's serving. Mm -hmm. it, is it the housing part, the affordable housing part, or is it the incentivizing people to build part? And are we doing that right? It's so sufficiently complicated now. On the larger pro issue around incentives and sort of the more invisible thing, not the thing that helps something get built, not the actual physical building perhaps. When we talk about tax incentives around job creation, when we talk about tax incentives around housing or other physical property, I know that I, my, myself and some other colleagues do wonder where the balance is. And mm -hmm. especially when we talk about, like, we just talked about Amazon coming to New York City and actually here recently, and you know we're we are putting some I think some money forth, but normal what we would normally put. But you, you're reading articles every day now of cities almost mortgaging, mortgaging the, the future of their city in order to get Amazon to come to their city. And I recognize that New York City versus some other cities might have different needs in terms of job creation and attractiveness. But I get concerned for those cities, and I'm reading them that we should not be in a race to the bottom mm -hmm. to attract companies where there might be no, but by the end of, we spend more than we get back. And I think that we have a long history in this country and in this city and the state of economic incentive programs that didn't meet their intended goal or stated mission. And I would note that almost every stadium that's been built in modern history has promised an economic boom and has not returned any value on the dollar. And and these are these are multi-billion-dollar corporations we're talking about that are owning that own them or individuals that own them. And so I, I'm very skeptical of all these programs that purport to to bring lots of investment and and I think a lot of historical evidence that they don't. And so I think all elected officials should be should be at least keep a healthy eye on those incentives, especially the discretionary incentives, mm -hmm. to make sure that we're not governing by a so that we get a nice press release. At the end of the day, or we get a nice news article that we did something, or we can say we brought X here, but really whether the dollar we're spending is netting a dollar plus in return. That example of the sports stadium in particular is, is a really resonant one. Yeah. But, you know, my knowledge of this research is limited. But one of the things that I've seen is that when these kinds of development incentive projects are tied to uh, enhancements in, like, infrastructure, and usually it's transportation yeah. and public transit infrastructure, that's when you start seeing, like, the multiplier effect of dollars spent. And so I know there, there are... Are programs to get developers to upgrade, you know, transit infrastructure during these projects and the like. Do you have like some thoughts that you could share on that too? I think that 
if you're invest if if an investment in something like a stadium nets you additional things like you get added subway service or an added subway line or extension that might have some value but the problem you might run into is you're actually now create if, if for instance you were creating an additional train line just to serve the stadium you're almost exasperating the problem which is you're adding more spending in mm-hmm. to fund the project that potentially should not be used by public dollars anyway and i would just know like i'm not picking on sports teams i'm a sports fan but um but a football stadium where there's 16 games a year on its face seems like a bad and not by eight, eight, 10 games a year at there unless you play, you know, unless you have a good team seems like a bad investment just by the just by the value of how many how many events you're having there but there are proposals about how you capture some money in fact right now in New York State we're having this debate about related to the Second Avenue subway and, and dedicating property taxes in that area to the Second Avenue subway Another model would be what we did in East Midtown around a rezoning where you associated new development with money towards the public space and public improvements. I'm generally favorable to being creative about how we associate new development to um, surrounding infrastructure. But I but I want to be I'm always careful when we say there's something that's too good to be true. It sounds too good to be true. It is too good to be true when it comes to these these economic development deals. And so I usually look at them with sort of a skeptical eye, but I am interested in these programs that can generate investments in the surrounding area. I think the the housing and development conversation is really interesting. I want to shift gears for a moment to talk about uh, criminal justice, because I mean, you're chair of the Criminal Justice yep. Committee, and, and so one of the big issues in New York is the closure of the Rikers Island jail complex. Yeah. And so can you just give like some overview and background on Rikers? Sure. I can. So Rikers is not just one jail, by the way. It's a, it's a complex of now soon to be nine facilities that house different populations, different ages, different groups, different genders. And so it's a island right off of East Elmhurst in Queens that has been longstanding as the place where most of the folks that are being detained pre-trial go and then a population that are sentenced under one year um, reside as well. There's one facility for those folks as well. So this is predominantly people that have been either found guilty for a crime that nets a sentence under one year or have not yet been to trial. And the effort around Close Rikers started, I would say, a few years ago, um, but sort of, you know, tied into other criminal justice efforts that are going on about um, both our sentencing, our, our um, uh, what we are arresting people for, uh, what we're sentencing them for, prosecution, sort of something that ties in all the policing, the courts, the DAs, obviously the Department of Corrections, the sort of wholesale effort. But I, I think that people started to recognize and realize that this, both from a symbolic standpoint, that we are, we have dedicated an island to move people away who have not even been found guilty yet in most cases. And we are gonna have this sort of centralized facility 
that is not close to most people's homes or their employment or their court services or their families, um, had its own symbolic failures, but had then realistic failures, which is that if, um, if, you, if you put people closer to home, they can, they can see their loved ones and, and, their, and they can see their lawyer and they can be closer to the court and other necessary services that you have a more just and humane uh, criminal justice system, in addition to the fact that there are facilities there that are, are woefully in need of being upgraded and modernized or rebuilt. And so the conversation about whether we should continue to invest in Rikers Island and continue to invest in, in, in buildings that both symbolically and physically are, are falling apart, um, I think that there was a recognition and realization amongst folks that doing it closer to home was a better a better way to have to, to do the system. And I think part of that also meant that you had to address the population that's there and that you can live in a safe city, in the safest city in America, but not view um, uh, our criminal justice system where you, you lock them up and throw the key away, that we can have a, a system that is closer to all of us. Symbolically, again, that means that we're also, we see it, we feel it, we touch it and that people can have better access to all the things they need. And understanding that most of the individuals are going to end up back with us, and they're part of us, they're part of our community, that um, we, we want to treat them that way and recognize that we want to have all the appropriate services and touch points for them to come back and be able to live a normal and uh, life where they get back on their feet. A few things here that I think are really interesting. There's a symbolic importance uh, or salience, I guess, of uh, moving people who are awaiting trial away from their homes and mm-hmm. communities and the, the rest. And then there's also the physical plant and the difficulty to get access to services, including legal services and the rest. And so there's an effort to close Rikers and create more community-based, you know, jailing, especially for pretrial incarceration, yeah. right? Can you t- talk about like the process by which, you know, jails and other kinds of facilities could be cited? Because I think that's an interesting thing. And I imagine different communities have different needs with respect to like, the numbers of folks who are going to be in jail. Mm-hmm. But also different uh, needs and for citing and different needs for balancing public services in their district. Yeah, very good question, very timely, because we are headed towards a process to actually cite the jail. So about four weeks ago, the I think it was right around Valentine's Day, the mayor and the city council, and I was lucky to be there, announced the actual timeline and process to cite the new facilities. That doesn't mean that we will be closing them down on that timeline. It means that we will be, we've picked the sites that we are, uh, as a city, creating the timeline and the process to move through the actual zoning and land use process to site them. And if successful, we'll then have four jails with an un- somewhat of an understood capacity and we'll have to design them. But that process is called ULERP in New York City, which is a land use review process. And it is a process by which we do any siting of major facilities or major rezonings go through this process, which includes the community, the local council member, the borough president, the city council itself, the mayor, city planning. It's a step-by-step process of how you site it. So we announced, and the city announced, the four sites that would receive new jails in their communities, one in each borough, absent Staten Island, and the Queens one, the Bronx one, and sorry, the Queens one, the Brooklyn one, and the Manhattan one would be facilities that would be rebuilt, that are existing, but would be rebuilt and and somewhat repurposed, uh, and then resized to take on the new population. 
And then the Bronx location is a new location that was identified. And as you can imagine, during the announcement, as folks were re- realizing in the Bronx that there was a new established, a new facility coming to their um, to their community, they had concerns and questions about what does that mean? What does that mean from everything from their safety to the increased footprint and foot traffic and security perimeter and things like that. So that conversation is beginning with all the four communities that are receiving the new sites. But the Bronx, I think, is the one that will be the most in-depth because of the newness of the proposal and the idea that they're figuring out in real time what the impact is. Uh, what typically, one interesting thing we did is we connected all four. So one, all four are, are in the process together. Normally, you can put those into separate different timelines and processes, but we connected them mm-hmm. to understand the connectedness of the system and that in order to do this, it has to happen all together and one couldn't be eliminated and the other three remain. This is really important that all four move. The important thing for them is that the community surrounding the new jail facility is at the table, has a voice and can signify what's important to them, what their concerns are. And I look, I think there's an opportunity here to build a new facility that is not intrusive on the community, but I don't speak for them and they certainly are, are well represented and I think will or have a voice in the process and I think have expressed some concern about it already automatically. So that process will in November, I think, and maybe late, maybe December will start the process and it takes about a year, it takes a little bit under a year to go through the full review process until approval. Mm-hmm. That will mean that the jails, if that is successful, will be approved for those locations. And then there'll actually a process continue to reduce the population on Rikers Island, close facilities down, build the new facilities. And really, I think for the communities that live around those, they're gonna have a lot of demands about what they feel is appropriate or necessary to help get them to support it. And those are conversations starting now and will go through, you know, till the entire process next year. the subject of criminal justice can i ask you about like some prospective things too like um i spend a lot of time thinking about artificial intelligence and social equity kinds of concerns and i'm doing a couple of projects around that and Mm. fus is getting more into the ai and society kind of space as well in the most prominent example of this in the in the work that we do is around pre-trial bail determinations and algorithmic risk assessments there. I'm just curious, could you share some thoughts on how you see, you know, risk assessments and then other, like another slate of like more future oriented kinds of tools assisting in the criminal justice process and how you think about those? You I think know? risk assessments provides a lot of opportunity. In addition, in addition to risk assessments, um, to helping determine the amount of bail that somebody can afford. Because I think that one of the one of the recognitions here is that bail can vary. Risk is actually so certainly one of the the things that goes into it. But um, trying to set, I think there's some evidence to believe that we could do bail set bail differently, and that some of the assumptions we have around bail may not be totally correct, but are based on you know assumptions we've had for a very long time. But even determinations about what somebody can afford based on their income, their amount of you know their family size 
other things. I think there's interesting models that are being used or experimented right now to help even defenders to make a rebuttal to the to prosecution during the setting of bail about, well, how about this amount instead to help and helping to determine that. I think there's a lot of interest in the pre-trial, um, yeah, the pre-trial portion that could be could be assisted by use of technology, algorithms, and trying to improve on what are human calculations about things that could be assisted by um, new technology and new ways of doing it. I think that um, one of the things I'm interested in, this is not necessarily technology, but it's about systems, is whether we can, we can look at jail design and to ensure that there is less contact between inmate and officer, and that's really for the protection of the officer as much as the inmates, um, to ensure more safety procedures and protocols. But I think there's I think in every system, especially in a complex system like, and by the way, and also um, housing units and where people should be housed, that could be everything from um, uh, gang affiliation and what risks are associated with that to needs from services, um, to make a calculation of where or what that person should be receiving, where that person should be going, what they should be receiving. Um, I think there's a whole opportunity in the criminal justice system to improve on longstanding um, ways we've done things that are predominantly based on human calculation, and if not not replaced by it, mm -hmm. at least aided by new new ways and new algorithms and calculations. city council member, but you've been in and around yeah. the space for some time. So what are things that you found to be surprising, you know, once you got into office as yeah. well? I think that nothing that's radically different than I expected, but I think, A, you have all these competing parts of the job that you have to do at the same time. One is actually being down in City Hall, voting on things, working on your committee, um, working on issues that may some be relevant to your district immediately and some that are not. And then the part where you are just directly doing advocacy to your constituents. And, um, and you have to be able to do both of those. And sometimes you have to be, you have to do one, you have to go to your district and you can shoot, you know, so you have to find that balance and it's extremely fast and busy and you have to be able to find the pace. Um, and I think that certain things that you come in as assumptions about elected officials or whatever, you will find to be untrue. I think people have this like skepticism about people who are elected to things that when I look at the colleagues I'm with, they have a really genuine concern. I, I mean, this is not, this is true. I mean, this is, they have very genuine concerns about issues where I may not agree with them on the issue, but I never believe that they are doing it for anything except for they think it's in their district's best interests and they've thought about it and they've deliberated on it. And rarely do I hear somebody say, I, I don't wanna do that for political reasons. I think they say it because they have a genuine support or concern for it. Um, so that's, that, that's one thing. And then I, I, one thing I always think we do a very good job in government is to say no to things. So I think that finding ways to work, work towards, uh, you know, yeses is a, is a better, is a better way to work at it. And, um, and you have to do your best within the sort of system that you work in to, to get things done. How do you find time to learn about policy areas when you're doing the voting, you know, meeting and networking with your colleagues, doing the constituent yeah. service stuff? Like, what's just personally your process for, like... I'll tell you my process, but I'll tell you an observation that's 
that taps into that, which is that your timeline for something does not mean that is the timeline of things getting voted on, getting hearings, getting uh, getting being brought to the forefront. So you do have to be a little bit of a quick study. You have to have good validators outside that you can work with on any issue to give you a good, honest opinion of something. And it's it's wise to rely on people that have much more experience you in an area to give you at least the general background and have good independent sources of information. Mm -hmm. For me, uh, when we're going into a committee hearing, the good thing about the city council here is we have a very good staff that writes very detailed analysis on different issues that can help you bleeding into the hearing, get a, especially budget time, get an understanding of how we're spending money, uh, what priorities we might be looking at, or we should be looking at areas that are being unmet. So I think we are we have a we have a good ecosystem. The truth is, you have to make the time to actually. You can't learn anything if if there's a piece of paper in front of you, you don't read it. So I try to carve out. I try to at least be reading those, reading the reports, understanding. I mean, I, luckily for me, I think I came in with some experience, but on areas where I feel like um, it's a, there's a learning curve, I try to I try to carve the time out to actually find out about it. And the good news here is you, there's never really a lacking of people who want to tell you what they think about something, So, which is for good. So you have a lot of folks that you can work with on specific issues. But for me, particularly on areas where I'm still learning or I'm still figuring out exactly the sentiment on an issue, I tend to have people that I, I feel like I can talk to and have a good back and forth and ask questions. And by the way, when you go to the hearings, another good thing you can do is take the microphone. I ask questions at every hearing um, to get a better understanding of an issue and to get a better understanding of how it fits into both my district and the city's needs. So you just can't be shy either to be able to ask the questions when you have them. interested in your take on how residents can engage. I mean, sometimes we describe like a vote as a blunt instrument, but there's a bunch of other stuff that happens in between voting cycles. So I'd be curious about your take on that. For civic engagement, I think you're correct that we, it, it, for many people, it ends after election day and it only occurs on election day and that's a problem. And it's, first of all, in, in every single state in, in the country, we should be having, making it easier for people to vote. We're pushing for early voting right now in New York State, something I fully support. Just make it easier so people who feel like, oh, I can't actually make it there today, who cares, I don't think my vote matters, to, to come, be able to come back on the weekend. Tuesday seems like the worst day to be voting, by the way. By design. So, by design, <laughs> right. That actually goes back, I think, to when people actually had to travel to the Capitol and needed to leave on Tuesday to get there by the weekend. But the idea that you can't vote even the day before, like we can't have a, a, a three-day election day um, is sort of radical and ridiculous. But um, but I think that the thing that's lost on people right now in this age of Trump, where so many people are, could, are have expressed concern about things going on, is ways they can get engaged. I will tell you the following. One is you can get engaged by starting your own engagement uh, institution or organization. You can say, I have 10 people that uh, that are looking for something to do. We care about this issue and we're gonna get more involved. We're gonna go talk to our Congress member, our council member, our state representative, 
and talk to them about gun control or talk to them about marriage equality or immigration. It's, it can start, if you are a constituent, your voice will get heard, and but you have to go and create the processes by which it gets heard, everything from your individual uh, organization to organizing other people. And obviously the more people that, um, that are included, the more likely you're gonna get your voice heard or at least create a mechanism by which you can you have a podium in front of you. So I think A is you can create your own, but I but campaigns are a fantastic way to get involved, political campaigns, if you're looking for a way to use a, a day on a weekend to go help a candidate you like. Don't just say I'm gonna go vote for them, actually go to try to tell people why you're going to vote for them. Um, creating your own organization or finding one that's already available. And if you think that one doesn't meet your needs, then either join it and get make it better or, or, or find your own that you think serves your needs. I also know people who've been really innovative in terms of putting their tech skills to, to use the apps that make it easy to, so you can send your, your local representative a letter, that you can advocate for issues. I think you should find what you're good at and you, mm-hmm. should, you should tie that to advocacy. Don't do something that you're bad at. Um, so I think that's a, that's a big one. If you're good at programming, then program something that lets people advocate. If you're good at tweeting, we, we probably need less tweeting these days, but if, you, if you're good at tweeting, it's a pretty fine. saturated space. It's a pretty saturated <laughs> space, but maybe there's a way that you can help get your voice heard. Well, that's excellent. Thank you so Thank much you. for Thank sitting you. down and Thanks making so this for us. Yeah, this is great. Anytime. That was David Colby-Reed in conversation with New York City Council Member Keith Powers. You've been listening to Fusapod, a podcast about creativity, community, and the things that matter. Music from this episode is a track called @hotline.gov by Anonymous420, accessed via the Free Music Archive. You can find us online at fusa.com/podcast or on Apple Podcasts, where you can also leave us a review if you like what you hear. Fusapod is produced by Rob Nanis, Jared Reed, and me. I'm Li Shan Huang. Until next time. Bye.